Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Happy New Season! This is Dr. Santosh, your neighborhood-friendly pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. So we're back for another season, and this time we have a whole bunch of fun stuff stored up, which is very similar to every other time, (laughs) so more of what you've come to love. Hooray! We just lowballed ourselves. (laughs) To all of our old listeners... Guys, this season's going to be like 10 times more often. Hi, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood oh, medicine doc, oh, Dr. J. And we definitely did not just record a good solid five to eight minutes of time. Welcome I, I back for a brand talk new about season. The fact that this year we, we had the potential to have like production. <laughs> and it was going to be like well researched, interesting. Cool medical facts with a fun, humorous take. (laughs) Gosh, I have to say, though, in the run-up to this season, we really did do quite a bit of research. So, Santosh, what did we decide to start the season off with for everybody who is tuning in for our fifth year in a row? I think both you and I thought it would be really, really beautiful if we went deep dive into history on a subject that's near and dear to my heart, which is antibiotics. So, guys, we want to start off this season with a rundown of the history of antibiotics through the ages, all the way through when Paul Ehrlich just discovering what these little beasties are, these things called germs, all the way through to the development of antibiotics up to where we are today. 
with all these modern antibiotics. That's right. From gremlins to germlins, from Bach to Albibach, we're going to be talking about the history of <laughs> antibiotics, starting in this first part with a lot of the ones that were developed naturally, some big ones. I'd like to call them big naturals. <laughs> yeah. Let the puns begin. You know, I went back through and, you know, I've been studying antibiotics now professionally as a specialist since 2007. And I thought I knew a lot of what there is to know. But I was super happy to find out all these cool new facts, especially about ancient antibiotics and how the natural antibiotics were first derived. Josh, as you know, we're still finding a lot of new natural antibiotics. A couple of seasons ago, we talked about Tyshobactin, which was just a breakthrough in finding this antibiotic molecule, which was made by soil bacteria. You know, it's it's already there in the dirt, ready to be harvested. But this is a tradition that goes back a couple of thousand years. And as you will come to learn by the end of part one, traveling around the world Scooping up dirt is apparently super competitive hot job it for scientists. Was. There were people who were paid to sample soil for a long period of time, especially when we started finding out that the bacteria and fungi in our environment are the ones making the things that can kill bacteria and fungi that can kill us. So before we get into the beginning of what we all traditionally think of as antibiotics, Santosh, I believe you actually went on a deep dive into the history this time and found some of the earliest known, we'll call them generously yeah, intentional antibiotics. Absolutely. So we're going back before we had any kind of germ theory around. You know, heavy metals are fantastic, Josh. Good one. Oh, like uh, Slayer? Megadeth. Megadeth's a great one. Um, but no, heavy metals poison <laughs> living organisms. Now, never mind that they're toxic to us too, right? But, <laughs> you know, if you're in a pinch and you've got nothing else going for you, you know, mercury for syphilis was used uh, all the way dating up to the Civil War. Uh, we had things like iodine, bromine, arsphenamine, which is an arsenic derivative used for the first in the first half of the 20th century. And don't even get us <laughs> yeah. started on the side effects. Mm. Yeah, for those uh, new to the podcast, that was sarcasm. <laughs> and it, it happens often. Those were the side effects of arsphenamine. <laughs> and uh, you also had mercury compounds to treat syphilis from about the 1300s all the way up to 1910. And you could use the mercury on the skin, like you could put it on a shanker, or you could take it orally, or by the time they developed syringes, you could actually inject it straight into a vein. And for those of you who'd like to learn more about that, may I refer you Yar. to the special episode we released previously on pirate medicine, where you will not only learn about <laughs> a pirate's favorite medication, which is, of course, arsphenamine. But also how Blackbeard once held <laughs> yep, an entire city hostage to treat his syphilis-addled men. It's a good strategy. I believe it worked out well for his uh, crew. Here's the thing about that, Josh. Well, People didn't know what was causing syphilis. Yes. You didn't have a good reason for you know, giving the mercury, like treating bacteria or anything. You just knew that if someone could survive the treatment, they actually got out on the other side syphilis-free. 
So, you know, you just had to survive the side effects of the treatment. As an alternative to heavy metals, we could go to plants and herbs. And I think we have numerous episodes covering, you know, field medicine. Uh, you and Dr. Ward went out to Africa and uh, talked about witch doctor medicine out there. I want to cover two which are still used today. One of them is the bark of the cinchona tree. And the derivative from this is quinine. So when you had malaria in South America, um, New World malaria, you could take the bark of the cinchona tree, you could dry it, you could grind it into powder, and then you could drink it, boom, quinine, and you could actually effectively treat malaria using this, uh, this compound. Another one all the way over in China, which was used to treat in malaria in Southeast Asia, was a derivative from sweet wormwood, or Artemisia annua. And today, artemisinin and artemisinin derivatives have actually made a huge comeback in the treatment of malaria after the quinine derivatives. Derivatives like hydroxychloroquine and quinine itself were creating resistant malaria bug. Now, if you'd like to know what quinine tastes like, you can go down to your local bar and order a gin and tonic, which is a cocktail created to better deliver quinine to people. And if you'd like to know what sweet wormwood tastes like, you can head down to your same local bar, <laughs> assuming you're That's in true. Chicago, well, uh, and order I'll yourself you a shot fact. of so Malort. There are and then you'll know what cancer tastes like. Wormwood. Sweet wormwood is what you can derive artemisinin from, there are other forms of wormwood that you actually would not want to use because you can get poisoning from it. But the sweet wormwood, uh, Dr. Tu Youyu uh, and her team actually looked through ancient Chinese medical texts and actually composed the, the actual molecule artemisinin from sweet wormwood and got the Nobel Prize in 2015 for physiology and medicine. But the truth of the matter is, we have, you know, Dr. Ehrlich and the other giants of microbiology in the early days of germ theory, when we were first learning that there was a connection between getting sick, these tiny little things you can find under the microscope, and potential molecules which could kill those little things and stop those symptoms that you came down with. So that chain of logic happened only in, say, about the 1930s, 1940s. And to a degree, we have some of the textile and clothing makers to thank for a little bit of this, as you'll learn over the course of the season. But let's start with, in the late 19th century, scientists first noted chemicals, such as certain dyes, could be used to stain some bacterial cells, but not others. And German MD Paul Ehrlich deduced it must be possible to create substances that kill bacteria selectively. <laughs> so they used to go down and borrow a lot of well, clothing dyes to do science experiments because, you know, scientists <laughs> no, were fashionable no, no, cool. back then. Well, this was in an Clearly age they've let a when, few things go. And we're actually back in that age now. You know, if, if something doesn't have a good, strong biochemical basis then we tend to say, oh, we're missing something or, you know, this can't possibly be right. You know, we were coming off things like alchemy, <laughs> you know, when you kind of just took a couple of things and put them in a test tube and you saw what happened. 
happened? You know, would it stain? Would it kill? Um, so and some cool discoveries we can, were made just kind of mixing some stuff together and making some really educated dis- decisions about what would happen when you combined a clothing dye with bacteria under a microscope. So let's get to some of the biggest names in antibiotics that everyone's going to recognize. Now, we've given diseases more than their fair share of time. Yeah, and we're we're going to continue. By the way, you those of you who love around the world in eighty plagues, you're gonna be in one happy mood when you start listening to this season. I'm already getting my monocle ready and my hot air Yay! balloon. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's start with the biggest, baddest elephant in the room. The one name everyone knows. I feel like it's a wrestling announcement. The one name everyone knows in antibiotics. <laughs> Discovered by Alexander Fleming, related to a piece of moldy cantaloupe, the one, the only, the all-powerful penicillin! And the crowd goes wild, because they're not going to die anymore. (laughs) Alexander Fleming, noted Scottish slob. In 1928, returned from a holiday and noted fungus had contaminated a culture plate of bacteria that he had accidentally left uncovered. <laughs> you got your fungus Presumably in my because pizza slices weren't a thing back then. Fungus. And in this lab, mold had grown up and created bacteria-free zones. <laughs> and he said to himself, I definitely intended well, for this to I, happen. I actually, Josh, and began I want to, to experiment further on his mold right juice. Here, right? So, uh, you know, a lot of people have this idea that like, oh, you know, science sometimes happens when people kind of stumble into things and there's accidents, you know, the apple on Newton's head or things like this. But the truth of the matter is that these kind of interesting little weird things happen to us throughout the day and year and everything else that's going on. The scientist is the one who makes that observation and says, instead of saying, ah, that was weird, they actually try to peel back the reason of why is this happening? And can I get it to happen again in a controlled situation? So that's the real difference. And how can I not lose funding from (laughs) not cleaning up my lab while I'm on vacation? Instead of just tossing the plates out, you know, Alex was all like, Hey, you know, why the heck is that happening? That's an interesting finding. So it wasn't straight from moldy plates to modern day medicine. And in spite of efforts to increase the yield, this particular strain of mold, while it could kill bacteria, it took 2000 liters of mold culture fluid to obtain enough pure penicillin to treat a single case of sepsis in a person. That is some applied laziness to get that much mold juice. <laughs> no, uh, you have to understand what's happening inside of a human body, right? So here you have a little bit of bacteria on a plate. The penicillium fungus is able to secrete this molecule. It's able to inhibit the growth of those bacteria. But when you have the growth, the type of growth that you have during sepsis or pneumonia, especially when we didn't have these diagnostic modalities that we have in this day and age, Josh, where when that person showed up to your hospital room or your clinic septic 
they were on death's door. So you, you know, you bet your ass the concentration. It also helps if the particular mold you're working with can produce in sufficient quantities. So if one strain produces one penicillin and another strain produces five penicillins per unit, uh, one of them is going to be a lot more effective as an antibiotic. And it was, in fact, the discovery of how to mass produce penicillin that led to the combined shared 1945 Nobel Prize in physiology and or medicine. Two things here. This season, you're going to get a lot of Nobel history. I had a lot of fun digging into various encyclopedias, newspapers, and Wikipedia pages. Two, how great is it that there is a Nobel Prize that can't make up its mind what it wants to be? (laughs) Physiology and or medicine. You know, we're not that picky. Well, uh, it's it's a kind of a broad topic. I do understand because medicine, you know, is something that you're going to do to kind of like treat the human condition, whereas physiology could be anything to like macroscopically explain how uh, people or in some cases animals work. 1945 Nobel Prize in Medicine for this story, which now it is an actually very interesting story, which which we'll get into. But prior to this mass production, which was carried out largely by brewers and mushroom farmers, (laughs) because those were two segments of our society in or at least the 1940s that already knew how to work with mold. Oh, neat. So yeah, you had to go to people, I'm guessing what cheesemakers, brewers, all these people who already knew you know, because we didn't have microbiologists yet who were mycologists, but they were trying to ferment beer, not necessarily produce an antibiotic. But they had the facilities to both select for a specific strain of penicillin producing fungus, as well as to mass produce said fungus. After all, that's what a mushroom farmer's job yeah. basically is. And from what I hear, they're a bunch <laughs> of fun guys. <laughs> all right, I'm sorry. I, I had. I had no, no, to say it, it was fantastic. Um, the microbiologists, some of them who I work with, are actually, they love to nowadays microbrew beer. And a lot of the times they come up with the fungi or the bacteria that they're going to brew with in the course of investigating the bacteria like in their microbiology lab. You guys, you're never going to guess what <laughs> fungus I got out of this diabetic. It's absolutely true. And then you can take it, you know, you purify the bacteria and you take it to your little microbrew. So, you know, everything comes full circle. Okay. For the record, listening audience, doctors definitely do not take, you know, patient <laughs> no, bacteria. No, no. These home are microbiologists. With. They're working with like standardized bacteria in the lab. <laughs> I'm not making right. this sound any better. Am I? <laughs> Shut up. So, you're making it worse. So we got mass production. Once a very specific and useful strain of penicillin-producing mold was uh-huh. noted from a moldy cantaloupe, great story. You should read up on it. However, it was still very expensive to make, and therefore, in a discovery I would love to have been present for but not subject to, between 40 and 99% of injected penicillin is not Yay. absorbed and comes out in the urine. Uh-huh. Thus... Uh-huh. Most World War II era hospitals had a pee patrol where resource strapped doctors would harvest unused urine penicillin yeah, and Waterworld style re inject it back in. 
Um, our team was given a two-week crash course in Oxford. This is a historian who's writing about this. When we saw the drug being produced and we were taught the methods of using it as well as how to organize a mobile lab in a forward area. Mrs. Ethel Flory was busy on her bicycle each day collecting the overnight urine from various hospitals from patients taking parental penicillin. The more sophisticated among us called this the morning milk round and the less so called it the pee patrol. This urine contained two-thirds of what had been given to the patient and... Of this, one half could be retrieved, recycling, so to speak. And you close totally the loop. Uh, and, you, you know, can this close is one of the these loop. methods that is still remembered by a lot of old physicians. You know, you lived around World War II and a little bit afterwards because when penicillin was in short supply, these morning milk rounds were absolutely essential to saving lives. So <laughs> if you see old people hoarding <laughs> urine, don't be so quick to write them off. Wouldn't it be awesome if, you know, we're diagnosing hoarding as just like this horrible mental illness right now. And then we find out in 200 years that like, and then we found out that the hoarders were right all along. I'm just saying, no, no, look, we know, all understand healthcare is expensive. No, there, Maybe a couple people are like, ahead of the, the curve on this one. Of physicians I'm not going to try crazy it. People, but little but did they know. So... Penicillins are probably the biggest class of antibiotics we see still in use today, but there are people who are allergic to them, or there's times when simply a penicillin is not the appropriate antibiotic to choose. We have a couple others that have been discovered since then, and another huge category are known as cephalosporins. This covers things like Keflex or Ansef. And they were discovered in 1945, so again, World War II, Indiana Jones era, by Italian professor Giuseppe yeah. Brozzu. Yeah, I, I want everyone to think about this um, a little bit like how we discovered DNA, and then all of a sudden there was an explosion of knowledge about human genetics. This was the same sort of wave of knowledge that came around when we first discovered penicillin all of a sudden, everyone was going for the gold, you know, trying to find more and more small molecules that would hurt bacteria. In 1945, we're looking at end of World War II. And post-war, there's going to be a lot of disease from just infrastructure-based damage. Giuseppe Brozzu, professor of hygiene in the medical faculty and rector of the University of Caligari, was also superintendent of public health on the Italian island of Sardinia. That's a lot of info about Ooh. this guy. Giuseppe Brozzu, professor Brozzu, was conducting surveys on the spread extensively of typhoid and the high number of cases that had been infecting folks in Sardinia and even in the surrounding regions of Italy. So one of the places he went was to Susiku, a popular swimming hole, still present today, that also happens to be at the time where sewage was discharged. <laughs> and yet, and yet, Signor Brozzu noted that the young swimmers who enjoyed swimming in this sewage hole, young kids, right, uh, <laughs> rarely seem to become sick. Yeah, he noted that these millennials rarely seem to become <laughs> sick despite the pollution. That was the that was the coolest thing about this. You know, I think this is going to be a recurrent theme uh, over these episodes. Gross stuff 
slime mold, sewage, dirt. This is all where we found the things that were killing us. So if you're a teenager, go jump into a puddle of sewage. <laughs> I guess is the take home message from oh, this. No, okay. no, it's We're not. Roll that back. So you was yeah. <laughs> gonna roll that way back. I'm I'm gonna put it a different way. A few people got very very lucky, and some very smart people made some really neat observations about those exceptions to the rule of if you expose yourself to crap, you're going to die. <laughs> so Professor Bratsu said, why aren't these teens dying in yeah. record numbers swimming in a sewage outlet? And this was the question he chose to study and discovered a fungus near the seawater, near the sewage outlet, that he identified as Cephalosporium acrimonium and cultures of this fungus he found inhibited several very important gram-negative bacteria, such as Salmonella typhi and Brucella melitensis. Now, remember, we said cephalosporins could fight bacteria that penicillins couldn't. And also, what is really unique about the cephalosporins is this isn't a fungus from the ocean, whereas most of the antibacteria yeah, we're going to be think, talking about were derived from soil bacteria. It was a fantastic and very resourceful fungi. find because you had gram-positive bacteria, so struck pneumonia, which would cause a lot of pneumonia, sepsis, meningitis. You had staph aureus, which would cause things like wound infections. But then, you know, you had farmers in the field who would get brucella. And this penicillin, this brand new antibiotic, wouldn't work for beans. Or they'd get something like typhoid fever. And, you know, someone would come along and discover that salmonella was the cause behind this. But this beautiful new miracle drug, penicillin, wouldn't work for beans. So here comes uh, our Italian buddies. And now we have broader antimicrobial. And remember, at the time that we're talking about this being discovered, penicillin <laughs> had just yeah, you're, started you're being mass produced. Really, so it's not really even like you could go down to your local pharmacy and get penicillin. Or, you know, get a hold of like a pea patrol and the right chemists who could actually like derive it out of the pea and then give it back to you. So even if Professor Brozzo was aware of the importance of his discovery, that he had discovered a kind of fungus that could fight all the bacteria that penicillin couldn't cover, owing to his lack of facilities and financial support in post-war Italy, he couldn't really study this. So in 1946, after he published his results, like any good scientist, he sent the fungus on to the Laboratory of Pathology at Oxford University, where Edward Abraham, who in who had been part of the Flory this team that so had won cool. the Nobel Prize for mass-producing penicillin, we were the learned how to mass-produce uh, these cephalosporins. you can start making these antimicrobials available to the public en masse. That's fantastic in such a short amount of time after the discovery of the molecule. The neat thing about this, Josh, which I absolutely love, so is this that, is when know, it was still little pharma, need, folks, like, not big pharma. It's ultra-clean vial of like a purified chemical at this point. You can just take uh, a piece of mold and, you know, set it in some growth media, like in some broth, and just carry it along in a bottle. That's totally awesome. So, interestingly, penicillin and cephalosporin are the only, at least in the U.S., antibiotics that yeah. come from fungi. All the rest come from other bacteria. There is, for you trivia addicts, one 
third antibacteria that comes from a fungus, but it's not available on this continent. We only see it primarily in the UK and Asia, and it is known as fusidic acid. It's a fungus from monkey fecal matter. That's that's yeah. my main. It's its own little protein synthesis inhibitor. Monkey fecal matter. <laughs> Oh, cut it out. We already prefaced this episode by saying that some of these coolest molecules which save people's lives comes from the grossest sources. Monkey. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't so... be sad about it. <laughs> it doesn't make your point any less valid. Maybe all the monkey scientists were flinging it like, look, look at this, you fools. There's so many antibiotics in, within this rich Do you medium. Think they were sitting there, like trying to communicate with us for millions of years, just flinging feces at us like, why don't the humans understand we're trying to save their lives? <laughs> they keep can't make it any more obvious if it's smacked them in the away face, screaming and saying, "I don't understand." Tackle that one human and bite its face off, and then rub the feces in. Maybe that'll get our point across. Pooflinging monkey yeah. scientists, urine hoarding elderly. <laughs> Did you want where to, to next? Uh, Streptomycin in the 1940s, as we have discussed, it was all about warfare on macro and germ levels. Now, folk medicine was a huge part of how people treated ills and ailments at this time. And Russian peasants would rub Ah, warm soil on their wounds to stave off infections. (laughs) So in America, we'd walk it off. In Russia, they'd rub some dirt on it. Mold had already been discovered by this point to have antibacterial properties. The question now became, could bacteria also have antifungal abilities that could help a lot of war wounds from getting infected? Well... Dr. Selman Waksman, Ukrainian-American <laughs> microbiologist, he developed a unique method in screening for antibiotics from soil microbes. Basically, he invented a fancy new way to sift dirt. <laughs> this um, method is still yielding new antimicrobials. So he discovered a certain genus of dirt-dwelling thread-like bacteria known as actinomyces, named because they actually looked like very similar to fungal strands, but it turned out that it was a bacteria and it produced effective compounds capable of actively killing bacteria. So for this dirt sifting and discovery (laughs) of actinomyces, he got the 1952 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his discovery of streptomycin. And it was named for twisted fungi tubes. That's yeah, what and it translates for a while, to. The very first drug effective against tuberculosis. At this point, this was an ancient, ancient disease. And it was absolutely found on every single continent. And it was a scourge. Because, you know, you started an outbreak of tuberculosis. And all of a sudden, people in a wide area were all dying slow deaths, right? So, you know, having an antibiotic that could actually treat this little guy, it was huge. The only problem was, we found out very quickly, is that single drug therapy for tuberculosis was not that good at all. And it it took a little while before we found other agents that we could put alongside streptomycin to effectively treat tuberculosis and beat it down. Unfortunately, Dr. Josh... In this day and age, streptomycin is kind of a historic drug. 
it's very rarely used anymore, even for TB. In an era of drug drug multi-resistance and failing of our new fancy modern antibiotics, it does have a role to make a bit of a comeback. Yeah. But historically, it is certainly worth mentioning because uh, let's let me bring up a couple things that you may be unaware of. So. At the end of World War II, the, U- the U.S. Army experimented with streptomycin, this new antibiotic, to treat multiple kinds of life-threatening infections oh. at a military <laughs> hospital in Battle Creek, Michigan. The first patient treated didn't survive, Yay. so it didn't work out too great. The oh. second patient treated survived, <laughs> but, became okay. bl- but became blind as a side effect of the treatment. But the third patient experienced uh, a rapid and robust recovery in March 1946 and that third patient you may recognize Santosh oh, yeah, because absolutely. he later became He's, majority we're, we're leader of the United States Senate we and presidential nominee Bob Dole. So yeah, we're going to start seeing more and more of these historical figures who owe their lives to the first successful courses of antibiotics. There- so, have you ever played the history trivia game Brad Pitt versus Lasers? No. <laughs> it's it's basically a travel game where you try and figure out which came first. So, you know, Betty White or sliced bread. It's Betty White before sliced bread. Right? Yes. So now you know yeah. Bob Dole before antibiotics. <laughs> I love that. I think. Um... I think it might be lasers before Brad Pitt. Ah, uh, no, no, it's it's Brad Pitt before lasers. Oh, but uh, yeah, really? so Bob Dole, Bob Dole before antibiotics. Bob Dole, Bob Dole, Bob Dole. <laughs> so currently, yeah. as you did from, mention, from antibiotics strep- to Viagra, <laughs> <laughs> that guy was champion of all had- kinds of drugs. The man has had a very interesting drug-spanning career. Oh, yeah, I feel so proud. I was, you know, one of the first saved, you know, lives from streptomycin. And then <laughs> all the way to the 90s. <laughs> so currently streptomycin is used not so much in humans, but as a pesticide for many crops and as a first-line med for many veterinary patients. Uh, however, the bacteria that formed the original streptomycin was discovered in New Jersey soil, and as such, streptomycin griseus is the official New Jersey Ooh. state microbe. One of only three states oh, that have its own microbe. So it was um, Oregon uh, who chose Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the baker's yeast, as the official microbe of the state of Oregon in 2013. Um, so, oh, it looks like there might be others. Okay, Wisconsin, Lactococcus lactis, which is, of course, one of the cheese, um, bacteria. Hawaii is Flavobacterium, uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, Flavobacterium, um, because it actually came from a which was used by ancient Hawaiians for medicine, textiles, and for catching fish, and may have uh, antibiotic properties. Um, New Jersey 2017-2018 Streptomyces griseus, which is pending um, for its unique contributions to healthcare and scientific research. So Oregon, New Jersey, and Hawaii. Of course, Oregon picked one that was like, you can make beer out of this. The hipster microbe. 
Let's move on to our next. We're almost that done is. for this like this it. particular you know, you uh, week. Um, your funguses. Let's talk about nice statin. I don't mean to brag. I don't mean to boast, but I like nice statin on my breakfast toast. Woo! But not really. In 1948, microbiologist and woman Elizabeth Lee Hazen of New York State De- <laughs> of the New York State Department used Waxman's method of dirt sifting to keep looking for new antifungal compounds. And the way she would do this is she would identify a microbe in her dirt sifting and then expose it to two different pathogenic <laughs> fungi to get mugged, essentially. She would put it right in the middle of a plate and put on one side the yeasty Canada albicans, famous for causing thrush, and in the red corner, the deadly Cryptococcus neoformans, responsible for causing lung and brain infections. And then the challenger would be the new microbe. And most of them got just obliterated. But if it survived this death match, she would slap that microbe down in a mason jar and mail it to biochemist Rachel Fuller Brown in Albany, (laughs) who would look for another woman, who would then look for the active chemical and mail it back to her super weird pen pal to continue microbial MMA. (laughs) It's true. So you went from microbe to microbe cage match to purify derivative to, you know, microbe versus molecule cage match. So most of these tend to be too toxic for use in humans or animals and even plants. But specimen 48240 was the rare success. And it came from a dairy farm in Virginia. And that had a prominent bacteria from the Actinomyces family that would fight both Candida and Cryptococcus, initially called Fungicidin. Hazen and Brown later changed the drug name to Nystatin in honor (laughs) of New York State. If women have um, vaginitis from Candida, um, if they have fungal vaginitis, um, they can apply it topically. It is too toxic to ingest or use IV. So it's very good for a lot of uh, topical fungal infections. Um, but yeah, it's still in use today and still a fantastic topical antifungal. So I thought that was a fun. I've enjoyed all like the little bits and trivia of history lost in the pages of time for these. So now... I, isn't it the coolest thing? Like we take it for granted, right? That you order an antibiotic and it shows up from the pharmacy. But man, the time, effort, insanity, some of the discoveries made in wartime in the midst of pitched battle to figure this stuff out. Or a bunch of people just walking around collecting dirt. Like not even rocks, (laughs) just dirt. Yeah. (laughs) Well... Again, for a very specific purpose and some very smart people who actually knew what to do with the dirt. Thank you very much. No, it's impressive, but you're still walking around, like, making life-altering changes from effectively scooping some dirt in your pocket from a walk in the park. That's yeah, incredible. Or, or monkey feces, as you love to tell us. Monkey feces. <laughs> Why won't they get it? We keep flinging the answer right at their faces. Evolved my ass, you son of a <laughs> Fine. You know what? Fine. They call Leave us- him alone. Go back to the jungle, Murray. 
just let it go. Whatever. <laughs> they call us chimps. I call them chumps. <laughs> Some people like Jane Goodall going back and being like, oh, they were right the whole time. <laughs> Let's talk about one last antibiotic and then we'll wrap it up for this week. Are you familiar, Santosh, oh, with erythromycin? So, uh, you know, it's been largely replaced by the world-famous Z-Pack. Uh, we use it every single day um, as a base to uh, place over the eyes of our little newborn babies to prevent um, chlamydial infection. Where are these babies going no, that they're no, getting no. so much so chlamydia? All throughout are they hanging out with koalas? History, um, trachoma, uh, which is one of the most common causes for acquired blindness, happened because women would have undiagnosed chlamydia. And when the babies were being born uh, to these pregnant women, um, it would get into their eyes and it would cause abrasions and uh, a really, really bad infection. And even after the infection was gone, the cornea would be all torn up and these poor kids would grow up blind. So we actually found a beautiful treatment for it, which is to actually take uh, erythromycin, put it in a base, and then just squirt it right over the eyes, and it irritates or stings for just a little bit. Um, and then it goes away after like a couple of hours, and uh, whether or not there was any chlamydia there, it's dead now. So erythromycin works by decreasing the amount of protein that bacteria can produce. And it was one of the very first alternatives to penicillin for people who had allergies, as it covered or killed very similar organisms to penicillin. Now, it was discovered by Abelardo Ooh. B. Aguilar, a Filipino scientist and dirt farmer for Eli Lilly. Eli <laughs> Lilly, of course, being one of the major pharmaceutical companies, not just some dude who was keeping his own Filipino scientist in very poor working conditions. And uh, it was refined, synthesized, and marketed from soil samples from an area of the Philippines on an island oh, cool. of Iloilo. Oh, uh, and it was marketed, therefore, as Ilosone for the Filipino island where it was found. As Eli Lilly did not award the proper recognition and money to the family of Mr. Abelardo Aguilar. So he did not receive all the credit. And You know, once a technology comes into place, especially post-1900, that all of these things would happen, you know, west of the Atlantic. Um, but it's really, really cool to see, um, you know, uh, a scientist here from the Philippines come up with one of the really first innovative jumps in antimicrobials after penicillin had been used for just decades at this point. Or I should say a decade. So that's it for our first episode, which focused mo mostly on natural organisms derived from fungus and soil. When we come back next time, continuing this history of antibiotics, we're going to start talking about drugs that are a little bit more synthetic. We were discovered for them from bacteria, but they had to be tweaked just a bit before we could start nope. using them uh, to fight off infections. We always stand on, um, and in the midst of this are a lot of forgotten names. Uh, when penicillin was being made en masse, um, it by, uh, you know, Flory, um, you know, there were people who refused to patent penicillin so that it could still be made. Um, and there were people such as the penicillin girls who were by and large, the women workers in the factories. 
um, who worked in the factories to mass produce things like penicillin, often in very unsafe and dangerous conditions. And, you know, without the hard work and sacrifice of a lot of people, we wouldn't have all the cool things we have today, uh, almost all of which are critically life-saving. And I would like to comment that the moldy yeah, cantaloupe yeah, that contributed the most to the development of penicillin came from a market in Peoria, Illinois. No, no, we'll be back with more actual Just the Tips this year, but uh, we're going to start things off right and throw all the fun facts and education we can at you. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can do so at all the links found in the show notes. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 